sabotage. That's what we're talking about. According to historycollection.com, in 1944, during World War II, Operation Grief was conducted by units of the German army to disrupt command, control, and communication during the Winter Offensive, which later became known as the Battle of the Bulge. Eventually, nearly 2,500 German troops were outfitted with American and British military equipment and uniforms, and they were tasked with infiltrating American lines and operating behind them, conducting both overt and covert operations against the Americans. Now, eventually, these men were caught and they were tried as war criminals, the men who were behind the operation but not before they created considerable destruction and confusion. Did you know that there is a sabotage mission being run on the church? There is. And this letter that's written by Jude will tell us all about it. Jude is a deep letter, and the more you study it, the more you can say about it. Uh, John MacArthur took 15 one-hour sermons to do the book justice. I will only be able to give you an overview of the book. There will be many unanswered questions, but I'll try to give you the main points and themes so that you can get a grasp of how important this book of Jude is for your safety, for your encouragement, and for the mission that Jude is calling us to. So let's jump in. We start with a standard greeting, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude is a humble guy. He leaves something out in his greeting. According to Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3, Jude is one of the four half-brothers of Jesus Christ. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude all grew up together in the Messiah's household. But they didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. I guess a dead brother rising from the grave can, grave can have that effect on you, right? <laughs> Now, who's Jude writing to? Well, 1b says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude gives his hearers here a strong encouragement because he knows what he's about to reveal is going to be tough stuff. He knows we'll need that encouragement right up front. Jude's encouragement is very strong, and each phrase builds on the previous one. Listen to how he encourages us. You are called. God has called you. He's not only called you into the faith, but he's drawn you in. You are the object of his mercy. Why? Because you are beloved in God the Father. God the Father loves you from all eternity past. Not only that, but you are being kept for Jesus Christ. God is keeping you. Why? Because he called you, because he loves you, and because he is giving you as a gift to Jesus Christ, his son. Now, if the almighty God is keeping you, can anyone or anything unkeep you? The answer is no. Jude opens with this encouragement, and he also ends with a strong encouragement. We drop all the way down to verse 24, we have one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of Scripture. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's some solid encouragement, wouldn't you say? And we will need it. Jude bookends the letter like this because the main content is so heavy. And if we don't keep the proper perspective, we could lose heart and be discouraged by what he's about to share. Jude wants us to know right up front that we cannot be taken out of the hand that keeps us. Okay. And in verse 2, we have, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude prays for us. Jude wants God to multiply mercy, peace, and love towards us. Are you encouraged yet? Brace yourself. Here comes the hard stuff. So, a little background. Jude is writing to Messianic Jews. These are converted Jews. They are ethnic Jews who now believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And they would have had a deep knowledge of the history and the literature that Jude uses in his letter. So Jude, he doesn't explain anything he says about the quotes, about the histories he refers to. That's why Jude becomes such a deep book. Just add water and it expands. <laughs> Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. Now, Jude originally wanted to write a letter of encouragement and joy about our common salvation, which is another way to say he wanted to brag about the family. Christians love to talk about the faith and share their joy in the Lord. But in this fallen world, our joy often gets dampened by bad news or unexpected events. Have you ever saved up for that summer vacation, counting the days before you go? And then just before, the day before your trip, the car blows a transmission. Thankfully, the money you save for that vacation is just enough to fix the car. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> now, we can laugh at that kind of stuff after the fact, right? But sometimes, as it is with Jude, the concern is of a much more serious nature. So what was it that got Jude to change direction and charge the church to fight for the faith. Well, verse 4 tells us, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. The situation was so serious that the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints was in jeopardy. What is the faith? It's important for us to know what Jude means by the faith. He's being very specific. It is the faith that we are contending for. Not some faith, not your personal faith, but the faith. And this particular faith was once and for all time delivered to the saints. That one faith is authentic. It was delivered from heaven. Every word of Scripture is inspired. 
That faith is historic. It was once delivered through the apostles in the first century and not since. And we are still governed by that body of truth that came through the apostles 2,000 years ago. And three, the faith is dogmatic. I know that's a bad word today. But it is a definite body of absolute truth that has been given to the church. We are to guard it, we are to keep it, we are to preach it, and we are to fight for it. That body of truth is revealed in the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. The faith is the teaching of Scripture that we hold in our hands. This book right here, the Bible. Every word of it is inspired. Every word came from Christ both the ones he actually spoke and the ones he inspired to be written down. That is what Jude is calling us to contend for. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, they deny our only master and Christ. That's why. Saboteurs, traitors have gotten into the church unnoticed. So that brings me to our first point. We must be willing and able to contend for the faith. That's the charge that we're getting from Jude. The apostles warned us that this would happen. So this is not a surprise. And Peter, the apostle Peter, in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, he speaks of these people. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter warned the church that these men were coming Jude is telling us they're here. They have arrived. They crept in unnoticed. Jude is concerned about Satan running a sabotage mission on the church. There are traitors in the ranks, and they've gotten in unnoticed. These are persons who, for a time, they looked and acted like the real deal, like true believers. But they have turned their allegiance they have become apostate. An apostate is someone who falls away or turns away from the true faith. Once professing the true faith, they now denounce it. Many apostates leave the church, and so they pose no danger to the church. They go out in public, and they may be active against the church, but they're outside the church. It's obvious that they're not part of the church, and in that sense, they're honest. They say they don't believe, they separate from the church, They're, we're not confused about where they stand. But Jude's not concerned about that kind of an apostate. Why? Because they no longer identify themselves as Christian believers. They've left the church. The apostates that Jude is deeply troubled over are far more dangerous. These apostates have fallen away also. They deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ through their licentious living. 
but they're still inside the church. They still claim the name of Christ. They have become secret agents for the enemy, saboteurs. Their intention is to make others doubt the truth. They seek to undermine the church. They attempt to destroy the work of Christ. They are unnoticed because they came in as card-carrying Christians. They have heard the truth. They deny the truth. And they are attempting to lead others astray. That's why they're so dangerous. They're hard to recognize. So Jude will spend most of the rest of this letter teaching us how to recognize them. Surprisingly, it's not their doctrine that Jude focuses on. Rather, Jude points us to their character. He paints a razor-sharp picture for us of what these men look like. Why character instead of doctrine? Well, because false doctrine is not the best indicator of an apostate. Not all of them teach falsely. They can stay undetected if they don't put out obvious contradictions to Scripture, especially when they're in public. But behind the scenes, they build up followers who eventually help them in their mission. Conversely, there are men who teach falsely, but they're not apostate. They are misled, maybe by an apostate. These men can be pulled back from the fire, as Jude will teach us later in his letter. These certain men look like the real deal on the outside, but the way they live reveals their true nature. So, my second point is that we must be able to recognize false teaching and false teachers. So, have you been able to identify any secret agents of Satan in their sabotage mission? Not to worry. Jude has not left us in the dark. Now, before Jude gets into his detailed description, he gives us three examples from history about how God dealt with apostates. And they're pretty frightening. This is both for an encouragement to us who are kept in Christ, but it's also a warning for those who are apostate or anyone who's leaning that way. So jumping down to verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So verses 5, 6, and 7 each give us one historical example of God's judgment against apostasy. All of these accounts would have been very familiar to the people that Jude was writing to. So he doesn't explain any of the examples. He just assumes that his hearers will get the point. We, unfortunately, are maybe not as familiar. So I have some splaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo used to say. <laughs> I know it went over some heads. Just Google it. 
First, we have in verse 5, those who were saved out of Egypt and then were destroyed because of their unbelief. Jude is referring to the people of the Exodus. The history of that is found in Numbers chapter 14. God saved the nation of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. He heard their cry for help, and he sent Moses and Aaron on a rescue mission. Millions of people left Egypt following Moses, and they all witnessed great miracles on the way out, including the parting of the Red Sea as they were fleeing from the Egyptian army. They were included in the Exodus. They were descendants of Abraham. They were among the chosen people. They looked like Israelites on the outside. They identified with God's people by following Moses, but they didn't trust God. Their hearts were turned away from God. On the very day that they should have marched into the promised land, they refused in fear of the people of the land. And God cursed their unbelief. Only Caleb and Joshua, along with the children of the apostates, were allowed to go into the promised land. All the rest perished in the wilderness after wandering for 40 years. Then we have the disobedient angels. They're held in chains for judgment day. Who are these angels? I'll let you figure that out. (laughs) So the book of Jude is well known for hard to understand statements, and this is one of them. The, The debate about these angels their exact identity, and their particular transgression is a big one. And if I try to solve it for you right now, you'd be late for lunch. Make that dinner. But Jude leaves the details out, again, because the audience would have known the story. But the details are not important to the point that Jude is trying to make. The point is that God did not even spare angels from judgment who sinned against him. What we can see from the verses directly is that these angels were sinners against God. They disobeyed God. They left their position of authority. In other words, they were acting outside of the sphere of responsibility and authority that God gave them. What they did was unauthorized. They also left their proper dwelling. So they were operating in a place that they didn't belong. Who they are and what they did exactly is where the mystery lies. The point is, is that they went against God to their own destruction. These angels now serve as an example of what happens to the ungodly and the apostate. And then we move on to Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they now serve as an example Their sin, of course, was the pursuit of immoral sex, unnatural sex, homosexuality, even wanting to violate the angels sent to rescue Lot from the coming destruction. I think most of us are pretty familiar with that story, but if you want to refresh yourself, you can read about it in Genesis 19. The point Jude is making is that the end of apostates is eternal destruction, damnation. Damnation is a better word. They will not succeed in overthrowing the church or thwarting God's plan. Apostates, be warned. Believers, be encouraged. In these three accounts, Jude is beginning to paint us a picture 
of the character of the apostates, these certain men. Starting in verse 8, Jude begins his detailed description. These all have common attributes, these men. So verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He says, in like manner. Jude is now comparing these certain men who have crept in to those historical apostates who faced God's judgment. Jude says, these men are just like them. And he gives us three characteristics of apostates. First, they defile the flesh. These men are engaged in fornication, pornography, and in like manner of sexual sin. And they live for sensual pleasure. And anything that satisfies the lust of their eyes, that's what they're after. Bottom line, they're immoral. They're contrary to God's moral standard, and they defy the law of God. Two, they reject authority. These men will not obey God or those that God has given authority to. Both inside the church and outside the church, they don't like being told what to do. Bottom line, they're insubordinate. They will not submit to authority. They defy authority. And number three, they blaspheme the glorious ones. They have no respect. These men are arrogant, divisive, and proud. They view others as if they were all subordinate to them. And they will not give respect where it is due, unless it benefits them. But they always demand respect from everyone else. They don't respect God or God's messengers. That was true in Jude's time, and it's true in our time. When you see these characteristics in a man who is professing to be a Christian, you're most likely dealing with an apostate. But how is it that they get so twisted? Well, Jude gives us a clue at the beginning of verse 8. These people relying on their dreams. He says these people trust in their dreams. The King James says filthy dreamers. The New Living says who claim authority from their dreams. The NIV translates it on the strength of their dreams. Basically, what these men are relying on is their imagination. The Kretzmann commentary describes them well. Quoting from him, they are dreamers, visionaries, whose own imagination deceives them. In their delusion and blindness, they take the unreal for the real. They become guilty of the most outrageous crimes of sensuality not only in thoughts and desires, but also in deeds. At the same time, they repudiate, reject the heavenly lordship. They refuse to accept and bow down under the rule of God, and they blaspheme the dignities, the angelic orders, and everything that has majesty and glory before God. Sound like nice people, huh? Basically, these people are not living in reality they have no fear of God at all. They even blaspheme the glorious ones. So all these apostates have these three characteristics, and every one is mentioned in verse 8. They defile the flesh, they're immoral, they reject authority, they're insubordinate, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're irreverent. 
Now, that phrase, blaspheme the glorious ones, I'm sure you all understand that perfectly. <laughs> That's another one of those phrases that needs some splaining. So, in the NIV, that phrase is translated as heap abuse on celestial beings. The New Living translates that phrase as scoff at supernatural beings. The King James, speak evil of dignitaries. And the CEV translates it in, and insult angels. So it's pretty clear that Jude is referring to angels. And verse 9 supports that thought because Jude next compares this conduct of blaspheming the glorious ones with an encounter between the archangel Michael and Lucifer. So look at verse 9 and 10. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, these certain men, blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed, but what, what they, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This account about Michael and the devil disputing over the body of Moses is another one of those hard sayings, hard to understand sayings. So where do we find that account in the Bible? Next to first speculation? No, it's not in there. No. The account comes from a well-known Jewish text called the Testament of Moses. This was a retelling of Moses' last days based on the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Jude's hearers, again, would have been familiar with the account, and Jude's point would have been well taken. Now, this brings up a little bit of a concern. This story is from a non-canonical book. It's a book that's not in the Bible, a book that's not inspired. But the Holy Spirit inspired Jude in his retelling of the story so we can trust the reliability of the event. When the Holy Spirit includes a story from a non-biblical book, that inclusion becomes Scripture. But only the Holy Spirit can do that. So don't get any ideas about adding thoughts to the Scripture, okay? So here we have the archangel Michael, who's at the highest level of angelic authority. And he's contending with Satan, who's also an angel, although a fallen one at this point but an angel similar in rank to Michael. Does Michael rail at Satan and command him to release Moses' body? Does Michael command Satan at all? No. Michael calls on the Lord to rebuke him. Jude contrasts this respect that Michael shows for even a fallen angelic authority with the conduct of these apostates who have no problem railing against angels. Do you know there's whole swaths of the broader church, especially in the charismatic sectors, that teach their people to openly rebuke, bind, and command Satan like he was a dog? That's exactly what these apostates that Jude is warning us about do. Jude says these people blaspheme all they don't understand, and they're destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals. You know, animals don't reason, they just do things. These people 
do what they understand instinctively, without reason. These people follow their instincts rather than God, and they're destroyed by that. Think about what that would look like if we did the same, if we turned off our conscience and we acted solely on instinct. There'd be a lot more homicides, a lot more thefts, adulteries, need I go on? Thank God for Jesus and the Holy Spirit who saved wretches like us. Amen? So in these three historical examples of apostasy, we see three characteristics of the apostate. They defile the flesh, they are immoral. They resist authority, they're insubordinate, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They are irreverent. Now, turning to verses 11 through 16, Jude is going to give us three examples now of how these guys act, what motivates them, and how do they operate. He also shows us that their apostasy causes the corruption of other people. That's why they're so dangerous. So with, starting with verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. First Jude begins by pronouncing woe on them. The path that these apostates are on leads to nothing but woe. And if they stay on that path, their end will be eternal damnation. But here's the warning. If you fall in with them, you will also suffer the consequences. That's what's at stake here. So what was the way of Cain? Again, I got some explaining to do. If you will recall the story of Cain and Abel, we find it recorded in Genesis chapter 4, 2b through 8. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. First murder in the Bible. Cain is the prototype apostate. So what was his problem? Cain had no faith. He was practicing dead religion, going through the motions. He brought an offering because he had to. And when God was displeased... What was Cain's response? Anger and murder and a lie to cover it up. Not repentance and faith. As Cain said, I am, am I my brother's keeper? Which is to say, I don't know where Abel went. Cain was driven by anger. His apostasy caused the death of his brother. Cain's way is the way of unbelief. People like Cain go through the motions, but they do not love God, and they do not love God's people. They are prone to jealousy and anger, and given the right circumstance, 
they'll even murder. Do you become angry when God rebukes you? Or when someone God has put in authority over you corrects you? If that's your default response, then repent and turn back to the Lord. Don't follow the way of Cain. Cain was immoral, committing murder. Cain was insubordinate. He offered an unacceptable gift to God. And Cain was irreverent. His response to God's loving rebuke over his offering was anger instead of repentance. Now we move on to Balaam. This is a rather long story. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. And you have to piece it together by visiting several different passages. And again, Jude doesn't spell it out because his hearers would have known it. But the story of Balaam is found in Numbers 22, 23, 24, Deuteronomy 23, and Revelation 2. I told you, you have to go everywhere. But Balaam was known as a diviner and a soothsayer, which is someone who claims to be able to access the spirit realm and tell of future events or inquire about secret things. And he would get paid for doing that. The amazing thing about Balaam is that he was a true prophet. How? Because God did speak through him. But at the same time, he was a wicked prophet. He was not right with God. And in the end, in the end Balaam lost his life over it. Balaam was a prophet for profit, as Chris Roseborough would say. The Israelites, led by Moses, were moving towards Canaan and had moved into the territory of the Moabites. The king of the Moabites, King Balak, was not happy about them, and he feared their presence. So what did he do? He sought out Balaam and wanted to pay him to curse Israel. Now, Balaam, he accepted the job, but he told Balak that he could only do what the Lord told him to do and nothing else. Now, in three attempts to curse Israel, God told Balaam he would not curse Israel. God said he would bless Israel. And Balak became furious with Balaam. He wasn't getting the job done. And he sent him away without payment for his services. Now, you think the story would end there, right? Not for an apostate. Balaam figured out a way to get God to curse the Israelites so that he could get paid from Balak. He figured that if he could get the Israelites to sin against God, then God would be obligated to curse them. And then he'd collect his funds. But how did he do it? Well, interestingly, the plan of Balaam is not found in the Old Testament. It appears in Revelation, and it's revealed by Jesus in his discourse with the church of Pergamum. Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. That's the plan, and it worked. We read about it in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore after the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord sent a plague in response to their rebellion. 24,000 people died in that rebellion, all instigated by Balaam. That's where apostasy leads. Balaam was immoral. He was driven by greed and the love of money. He was insubordinate. He tried to manipulate God for personal benefit. And he was irreverent. He had no fear of the God who threatened to kill him for his disobedience. God did have the last word. In the last battle recorded with Moses, Balaam was killed. He met his fate. Now it's just the beginning of his punishment. Now the last thing that Jude mentions here, the last example, is the rebellion of Korah. We find that story in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was already a leader in Israel. He was a respected man. He was of the same tribe as Moses and Aaron. And he already had a sphere of authority that God gave him. But he wasn't satisfied with that. He and 250 men he recruited started a coup against Moses and Aaron. They accused Moses and Aaron of taking authority on their own initiative. Isn't it ironic that Korah was accusing Moses of doing exactly what he was about to do? Moses responds by proposing a test. We pick up that story in Numbers 16, verses 28 through 33. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Now, you would think the Israelites who saw this would have gotten the message, right? I'm sure I would have got the message. But they didn't. Look at what they do next. Number 16, verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. 
God was mad. Now, Moses and Aaron were able to intercede for the Israelites, but not before the plague that God sent killed 14,700 rebels in addition to Korah and his men. Apostasy leads to the destruction of people. Korah was immoral, trying to take power that didn't belong to him. Korah was insubordinate. He would not submit to God's appointed authority. And Korah was irreverent. He did not fear going against God himself. And like all apostates, he perished in his own rebellion. Next, Jude moves on to give us five analogies from nature that further describe the character of these apostates. Like I said, he's painting like a razor-sharp picture. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So Jude describes these men from nature as hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. First, hidden reefs at your love feasts. Without fear, feeding only themselves. The early church used to gather together to share meals. They would fellowship, they would minister to each other, they would counsel each other, and they would just catch up on life. Depending on your translation, these men here are called hidden reefs, sunken rocks, blemishes, spots, or stains. The point is that these men ruin and spoil these dinners because of their self-serving nature. They don't care about the fellowship. They were there for one reason. They wanted to fill their bellies. They're like a parasite that consumes its host. They do this with no fear of judgment or accountability to God. They are faithless. Like hidden rocks destroy ships and stains destroy a garment, these men destroy the fellowship. The meals eventually stopped and it was because of these men. Secondly, these men are described as waterless clouds swept along by the wind. Now, during a drought, oncoming clouds are a wonderful sign, a promise of much-needed rain. These clouds look good. They're dark. And, but as they pass overhead, they don't drop any water, not even one drop. In like manner, these men make their promises. They lead people to expect something from them. They take your deposit, as it were, and they never deliver the goods. They're all over the TV. Next, they're described as fruitless trees. They're twice dead and uprooted. In late autumn is the last hope for harvest. The last crop, crops come in at that time, and if there's no harvest, there won't be one until next year. In like manner, these men give the promise of fruit. They give the impression of a harvest to come. But at the time of the harvest, these men have no fruit at all. 
they're twice dead. Once for no fruit, and twice because they have no root. They're uprooted. They are not connected to the soil of God's truth. They will never bear any fruit. Then we have the wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. This is interesting. The picture here is that these men are busy. They're always working. They look productive, but all they produce is dirt and debris. Isaiah 57.20 describes them. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. These men, after all their activity, leave only the record of their shameful conduct. They do nothing for the kingdom. Lastly, we have the wandering stars. Another interesting example. What does Jude mean by wandering stars? Well, stars don't move, right? If they did, you couldn't navigate by them. For many, many years before we had GPS and all the wonderful technology we have, the sailors would use the stars to guide their ships. And they couldn't move or you wouldn't end up where you're supposed to be. Well, in like manner, these men change their position whenever it suits their purpose. You can't follow their teaching. You can't follow their example. You won't end up at the promised port. If you follow them, they will lead you astray. Their destination is not heaven. And Jude makes that very clear at the end of verse 13. These men are reserved for the gloom of utter darkness forever. Church, the Word of God is the only safe way to navigate. It's the only sure way to get to heaven. Trust it like your life depends on it. Because it does. Literally. Now Jude's going to tell us a little bit more about the fate of these apostates. In Jude 14, uh, 1.14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly for all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, verse 16, malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 15, Jude uses the term ungodly four times. All the ungodly, their ungodly deeds done in an ungodly way with their ungodly words will all be swept into eternal hell on Judgment Day. They're grumblers. They're always complaining. They're malcontents. They're never satisfied with their status. Their sinful desires drive them. They boast about themselves. Now that's one sure way to spot a false teacher. Watch what they say about themselves. 
If you listened to one of their sermons and you learned more about the preacher than Jesus, bingo, that's a false teacher. They follow their own sinful desires. They're immoral, insubordinate, and irreverent. They're not satisfied until they get what they want, and they don't care how they get it, even if they destroy themselves in the process. Remember, unreasoning animals. Sin makes you stupid and blind. So we have to man the battle stations, right? These men are in the church. So what do we do in light of this sabotage mission? How do we stay safe? How do we fight for the faith? What do we do with these false teachers? Well, that's where Jude goes next. Look at verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So Jude gives us five commands that will protect us in the battle. First, he says, remember. Remember, the apostles warned us. Remember, the scriptures prophesied about this. Remember, Jesus is not blindsided. He warned us too. It's part of the program. Remember, God is keeping us for Christ. We can't lose. Second, we must build ourselves up in the holy faith. We do that by studying the scripture. We do that by staying connected to the body of believers. Can't overstate how important that is, especially in our times. We do that by training ourselves to defend the faith once given, that faith. Third, we must pray in the Holy Spirit. That means we pray according to the word of God. Where you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. Where you lack provision, ask for provision. When you lack courage, ask for courage. When you see no fruit in your witnessing, ask the Lord to bring you prepared hearts ready to hear the gospel. Pray in need. Pray in abundance. Pray when you're sad. Pray when you're happy. Pray when you're full. Pray when you're hungry. Pray before you study your Bible and pray after you study your Bible. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Did I mention you should pray before meals? <laughs> Fourth, Jude says to keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, this is not an exhortation to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. God's doing the keeping, Remember? But just like if you want to be warm, you need to stand in the sun. 
Jude is saying, keep yourself aligned in the stream of God's blessing. How? By doing what he just said. Remember who God is, build yourself up in the faith, pray. And there's also a sense here of you keeping your attitude in the right place. This is very important, church. Guard against discouragement. Make sure you're operating out of the love of God that has been shed abroad in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. We're new creatures. Do everything with love. Love towards God. Love towards your neighbor. Even if your neighbor currently is an enemy. Love your enemies. Last, Jude tells us to wait on the Lord for the mercy that leads to eternal life. So while doing all of the above, we wait on the Lord for the mercy that leads to eternal life. No matter what the circumstance, no matter where we find ourselves, no one can take you out of the Lord's hand. You are being kept by God for Christ. Third point, we need to build ourselves up in the faith and trust God for the outcomes. We need to build ourselves up in the faith and trust God for the outcomes. We who have trusted Christ are being kept by God for Christ. But that brings up a concern for me. For those of you who are sitting in the pews and are listening online, if you're not kept safe in Christ, what is keeping you safe from the just wrath of God against sin? The answer is nothing. Your sin may not reach the level of the apostates we've been discussing, but you are a sinner just the same. How, you say? Well, just look at the standard. How many lies have you told? Just one lie makes you a liar by God's standard. Have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you? Well, then you're a thief by God's standard. Do you have lustful thoughts about a person you're not married to? Well, then you're an adulterer by God's standard. Have you ever hated anyone? Well, then you're a murderer by God's standard. Friend, you're guilty before God. Judgment day is coming. What have you done with your guilt? Turn from your sin and trust in Christ for your salvation, and He will save you. Jesus literally paid the penalty for your sin. On your behalf, on the cross, God provided a way out for you because you can't pay for your own sins. You've, you've co committed cosmic treason. There's no way to pay for the sins against an eternal being. Yes, God's standard's too high for you. Yep, he, his demands are perfection. I get it. But while you're complaining about that, don't miss this fact. He has provided the perfection that you need through His Son, Jesus Christ. Instead of making you keep the law to earn heaven, He dropped you a rope from heaven. His name is Jesus. Trust that Jesus. Give your guilt and sin to Him and hang on to Him and you will be forgiven. And on that day when the rope is pulled up, you will be pulled along with it into eternal life. The only thing that will perish on that day will be your sin and your guilt. 
your soul, safe for eternity. Why would you reject that? Jesus is not a liar. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. Trust him today. So, there's great encouragement here for all of us. If you're in Christ, have no fear. We win even if we seem to lose. If you're not yet in Christ, then the offer of forgiveness still stands. Trust Christ today, and you will not have to worry about the coming judgment. Get in the fight. You can't lose. So, when do we strap on our guns? And everybody's waiting for that. Did you notice that Jude has said nothing about fighting with the false teachers? Not a word. So what are we supposed to do with them? Well, Jude gives us three more commands in that regard. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. After all that instruction about remembering, building us up in the faith, praying, waiting on the Lord, now Jude wants us to go out and blow up the false teachers. Right? Nope. He sends us on a rescue mission. We are on a rescue mission, not a search and destroy mission. What? <laughs> God's army is the only army that has as its mission the salvation of the enemy. Everything that Jude said up to verse 22 is part of the battle plan. By doing all those things, we solidify the church. We make God's people sensitive to the false teachers. And we establish a beachhead where we can launch our rescue mission and a place that we can bring people that we're rescuing. A solid Bible teaching church with faithful members is like heat on ice. False teachers cannot establish themselves in that environment. We keep them out. And at the same time, we make a safe harbor for those that we're drawing back to the faith. Now, Jude gives us three categories of people who are affected by this false teaching, these men. And we need to pay close attention because each one requires a different approach. First, we have the doubters. We've all been there. These are the young Christians who have not solidified their faith. They have doubts. They might think they're crazy. <laughs> I did for a while. They have a hard time reconciling what they see in the world with a victorious church. doesn't look like the church is winning. Some of them doubt their own salvation. And they're easy prey for false teachers. We treat these people with kid gloves. We lovingly guide them. We correct them. We teach them and gently reprove them when it's needed. Showing them how to spot the false teaching. Showing them how to recognize false teachers. Now the second group 
are the misled. These people are a little more into danger. We need to save them by snatching them out of the fire. These are those who have been taken in by the false teaching. And they're beginning to believe and practice these things. Things like centering prayer, contemplative prayer, social gospel, prosperity gospel, word of faith theology, universalism, and the list goes on. There's all kinds of crazy things being taught out there. These are people who have been misled by the false teachers and they need a little bit more of a stern approach and a skilled approach, which is why we have to build ourselves up in the faith. We've got to know what we believe and why we believe it and be able to defend it. Their doctrine needs to be challenged and their sources need to be exposed. Help them to see that the teacher they're following is not legit and be able to explain why. And again, we do this with love and respect, not with a know-it-all or a demeaning spirit. Cancel that. No demeaning spirit. We're loving these people out of their error, but with firmness. Their lives are at stake. Now, the last category might surprise you. This last group is also in verse 23. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the dangerous group. These are the most dangerous. They can defend themselves in a winsome way. They'll pull you in if you're not on guard. With these, we must warn them sternly and refuse to be drawn into their schemes. We show mercy, but with fear. That means our demeanor is that we desire to see them come back to the truth. We earnestly are concerned about their eternal fate, but we are very careful not to get involved with them. This group is dangerous because... They are the very apostates that Jude wrote this letter to warn us about. Yep, we're supposed to be rescuing them too. Some are misled and some can be redeemed. The Lord only knows, but it's worth a try. We have to try. Now, there is a sense here too in this verse that these people are so far gone that in order to save them alive, they got to come out naked. You don't even want to touch the clothes that they were wearing. It sounds desperate, but it's worth the effort if we can bring a soul to Christ. And remember, one who has been forgiven much also loves much. Some of these people will go on to be great saints in the kingdom. Some will never turn. But our mission is always the same. Preach the gospel, live the gospel, defend the gospel with love and respect. Courageously knowing that the Lord himself is with us, the Spirit empowers us, and God the Father is keeping us. We will win, even if it doesn't look like it right now. So there is a sabotage mission going on in the church. Our mission is to sabotage the saboteurs with the gospel. How do we do that? First, we must remember to study the word and build ourselves up in the faith. Remember who God is and what he will do with the apostates in the end. That should at least soften your heart towards them. Learn how to recognize false teachers and the misled among us. Then, 
go on a rescue mission, hoping to even bring the apostates that Jude warns us about back into the true faith. Remember where our success comes from. God, the Almighty, whose plans and purposes cannot be thwarted, He is keeping us. We can't lose. Now, there's no better way to end this letter of Jude and this sermon than with the doxology that appears right here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. And now and forever. Amen.